bigger market, almost half of the pet food market is based in the United States. That food actually becomes our lifeblood, our living cells. It literally becomes our brain matter, our hearts, our organs, and our muscles. Insects are just the tip of the iceberg. Mm, let's get ready to rumble! from Silicon Valley, the most innovative spot on earth. Corporate, the place for corporate executives that transforms innovative threats into business opportunities. And now, let's get ready to rumble with the host, Tommaso. From uh, San Francisco, good morning, or well, Good afternoon or good evening, depending where you are tuning in from. Very excited to do this uh, with you today. Well, what is it? What's, what expects us today? Another episode of our virtual coffee. Uh, what is a virtual coffee? Well, first of all, the name came up. We said, well, why don't we pick a couple of uh, amazing brains around uh, the future of food focused on alternative uh, protein? And this is where virtual coffee was born. We pick industry fellows that basically discuss how to future-proof markets. And I was mentioning, we focus on the second season already just on one topic, which is the topic of next-gen protein, alternative protein, meat analog, you name it. And this is exactly where we are at right now in episode 11. And today we are going to chat with three amazing speakers, industry fellows, entrepreneurs, scientists. And I would like to kick off um, with a short introduction here with Esra Service, an entrepreneur, biologist, founder of Naturanza in Funa Foods. And, and what a pleasure, Ezra, to, uh, to have you here. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, next in line, Jonathan Netsky, COO and acting CEO of Local Alternative Food slash NextVeg. Such a pleasure to chat again with you, Jonathan, today. Likewise, likewise. Thanks for the invitation. And last but not least, Hector Jimenez. We already had the pleasure to chat in one of our previous episodes. Hector is co-founder and director of Nutri Insectos. What a pleasure, Hector. My bad, again. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is ours. Without further ado, I would like actually to kick off things with our first round of um, questions. And this first round of questions goes to Ezra. Ezra, you have founded Naturanza startup that produces high quality protein from edible insects grown through pre-consumer food waste decomposition. Now you're also dedicated to a new venture called Funa Foods, a startup that processes superior plant-based protein with ingredients that other lack. Now, my question, what challenges and rewards did you find in this bold move in your career as an entrepreneur? And what can you share with other in the audience in terms of important trends slash innovative trends in food and nutrition in the next trend protein space? Please take it from here. 
Yeah, so I normally my expertise is gene cloning and protein engineering. I worked in this space for six years, but then uh, learning about this, the urgent need for more efficient protein sources, I started to focus on the alternative protein space. And during this period, we started like Natron uh, was founded to uh, produce from pre-consumer food base, converting them to high protein uh, content powder. And we were uh, artificially producing insects a year around, and it's, we started in Turkey. And um, then we we started with pet food because our culture was totally against human conception when it comes to edible insects. But during this period, we started our and when we started launched our product, we found a very good uh, product market fit. And in three months after we launched, we couldn't meet the demand. Then we started to look for fundraising, right? And during this period, we found an opportunity to come to Silicon Valley um, by a pre-seed investment that we, we have been through hero training in Draper University and we raised from them as well as other investors from Europe and Turkey. And during this period, we were looking for manufacturing because we found the product market fit. It was perfect. It's a so much bigger market. Almost half of the pet food market is based in the United States. So it will be awesome thing to start with it. But everything changed on the, after we uh, explored the market in the United States. So from this, I will I can go a little bit deeper. But um, for example, the pet food restrictions are more strict than human food. Like there are so many different things that it seems like it makes so much sense. And you already experienced one thing which worked so well in another another environment, like ecosystem, like Turkey. But it is there's a bigger opportunity here. It seems like, but it's the path is not that smooth. So you have to be very flexible when you need to make the pivot. Uh, during COVID, right before COVID, we were about to launch our meat alternative, which is plant and insect based to get, fill the gap in the market. And then COVID hit and we, we had to pivot again. But now we came up with the world's first non-perishable meat alternative. So if you are flexible, you are finding things, not just solving the problems and then just creating bigger incomes from it. I love your story. This is, this is very much a journey of an entrepreneur who keeps on hustling while keeping the vision still in mind, right? So you, the vision is always something that you are aiming or you have fixed in mind, but the path on how you get there, right, is always flexible, right? And I absolutely can, can sympathize and feel how you are, are experiencing this, this so tremendous and bold move from coming from other places. And in fact, I agree, I share similar stories that, you know, when you have a product, product market fit in another region, it doesn't necessarily mean that you solve the same problem for the same target audience with the same product in a new place, right? Which uh, is even bigger than where you're coming from. So thanks for, for sharing this with our audience. Very exciting to have you on board here on this virtual coffee. Let's switch gear to, to Jonathan. Jonathan, your company, Local Alternative Foods, develops and produces and also distributes product that matches the, ex, uh, the expressed needs to consumers and food services for fresh, local, 100% whole food plant-based ingredients, mouthful. So whole food and plant-based ingredients. From your perspective, what's the future on plant-based during dining in food services? You know, I, I thank you. I'd like to take this idea of the future of food really from 30,000 feet and, and maybe take a step back to Perhaps even in, in, if you would indulge me and, and possibly close your eyes 
to take a very short journey to your most meaningful first memory of food. You know, in my case, probably at seven or eight years old, uh, of a, a peach accessible for just a few weeks a year in any region in its peak of perfection and maturity and nutrition, uh, deliciousness. Imagine that unique feel, the, the, the special smell, teeth popping through that weird furry skin and the, the burst of the most delicious juice I'd ever imagined dripping down my chin. Let me grab a peach now because I'm getting water <laughs> in my mouth, okay? <laughs> the, 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 the flesh that just juices in your teeth, that incredible nectar, you know? And, but, but why is this so special? Why is it so memorable? And it's like that experience is coded right into my DNA. And, and in some ways it really is, as that food actually becomes our lifeblood our living cells, it literally becomes our brain matter, our hearts, our organs and our muscles. And so, you know, this is where we come from, all of us, an innate craving for clean, whole food ingredients, unadulterated from the purest and highest value form. And so to answer that question directly, in the, in the long term, I see that there's a belief that our cravings are highly justified and the science that whole foods offer the greatest value in nutrition and flavor. Thus, the newest technologies in the food industry are at least in part heading us back to producing clean whole food paradigm. Now, I, know, I do know this sounds crazy to a lot of us, especially in this alternative protein realm, because today the short term, and very much so evident in the short term, we'd say that the focus is on proprietary ingredients, you know, made and often from isolated constituent fibers or fats or proteins, turning them into the most delicious, convenient and affordable options. Yet I contend that every action taken to process that food into its constituents does require added energy input and inherently does take away some of the nutritional content while creating some waste and, and therefore increasing the carbon and water footprint. So ultimately it comes to where does that clean, sustainable whole food protein come together with price, taste, and convenience. And in many ways it does so moving back to regional and seasonal food systems. And, and there's one great example that might not be considered an alt protein, but maybe everyone in the world doesn't realize that even McDonald's, you know, going to protein and the grandparent of automation and efficiency in QSR and food services where I do spend all of my time. McDonald's has an annual limited time, 100% whole food Maine lobster roll. They only offer it seasonally. It's just in Maine. And when and where it's at its peak value and quality, they sell it for $7.99 versus the $15 to $20 that's more commonplace for an item like that making it accessible and keeping it sustainable in that sense. So looking at a short term and a long term, I see an evolution to continue, of course, in the direction we're headed with accessible proteins, but also to be focused on proteins in their most accessible form, their natural form, delivered on a regional basis as whole foods. Well, amazing. Uh, I think, I think the, the, the topic of, uh, uh, and I was just listening to a podcast this morning regarding uh, the future of food and 
I mean, COVID hit, yes, but we see increase in, uh, in around specific items such as di a diary, a, a, a one of the ma major brands without mentioning them went up four or five percent in Q1 uh, uh, because the, 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 the stay at home and alternative protein also, a lot of startups not just got funded, but they see an increase regardless if it's direct or uh, direct sales or, or retail sales. So, so we see that the topic of how, where do you find your local food, right? And uh, decentralizations of food supply chains are tremendously important. So I, I very much agree with you that, you know, bringing this balance between making it sustainable, um, affordable and fresh, right? It's, it's the goal, but it's challenging. So this equation is something that we really need to work together. Uh, okay, so Hector, we already had some, uh, some insight about Nutri Insectos, right? Now, we drilled down on a couple of uh, um, scientific information and insight, insights that we would like to pick your, your brain on. Um, namely, if you compare gram to gram with co conventional beef, um, raising insect protein requires roughly 8 to 14 times less land five times less water and emits six to 13 times less greenhouse gases. In addition, a United Nations report from 2013 suggested that eating insects might be a critical way to help meet the almost double food demand predicted by the year 2050. So a question here for, for you, Hector, working in this space is, how does Nutri Insectos position itself and collaborate with other players in order to promote growth in the industry and address problems related to the conventional food supply chain, including global water, water land, and energy deficits? Uh, well, uh, thank you for the question. Uh, first of all, we believe that human beings have evolved to be omnivores. I mean, we eat all kinds of food, whatever is, is, is available, and in whatever time uh, or season of the year, as Jonathan wa was saying, we need to, to adapt to, to what's available. Our main objective at Nutri Insectos, of course, everyone has heard at least about this trend, but we believe that insects as food are just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, what you will mostly see is cricket powder or any other insect uh, turn into powder. But our main objective is to work and go really deep into the, the production and the way that we can make this protein available, but also to extract all the nutrients and have all these nutrients available, but also that the production of those are uh, a sustainable way that can be not only in a way of powder, but also uh, work with, with other industry members to extract all the nutrients and everything else that is available in all different kinds of insects and make them available as an ingredient for different industry or collaborators. So our our idea is to, we know there are many options as to plant-based meat and different ways that humans are trying to obtain different nutrients from uh, sustainable sources. But um, the idea that, that, that we have is to take insects and to really go deep into getting all the nutrients and collaborate to develop finished products. So I, I, I'm not sure if I... 
responded your your question, but. Uh, Oh, you That's did, Hector, true. but I mean, you, if you want to double down actually on the word collaboration, because collaboration means a lot, right? And given the fact that the industry is still new, right? You might uh, giving uh, uh, maybe one or two examples on how those potential collaboration could look like. Well, uh, our main objective, as I said, is to work in production. A lot of companies, uh, you name it, pet food, uh, protein shakes, Many companies are trying to develop finished products using insects because it is important to not only have products that resemble meat, uh, taste, flavor, texture, everything, but also to incorporate high value ingredients, uh, very nutritious ingredients. Of course, this is gonna be super, super difficult if you compare the, the prices that uh, cricket powder or any other insect powder compared to pea protein or rice protein or soy protein, whatever. So the, the way that we are spending our resources is trying to bring that price down and be able to compare to other animal proteins. As I said at the beginning, we are omnivores. We need all kinds of ingredients from all kinds of sources. So the way that we want to collaborate is not only offering a, a sustainable source of protein, but really work hard into making it available and uh, affordable for those companies trying to integrate those high value ingredients into all the products that they are developing. So as, as you were asking, pet food is one of our main, main customers. We see, as Cesar was saying, it, it is super difficult to go into the US and even in Mexico, sometimes pet food is, is more difficult to human food but we see pet food as a, as a way to enter the market. And once customers see that, that insect protein is a high value ingredient that uh, people are spending a lot of money to give to their pets, we are confident that working with other companies, they will be developing other products that are more, that, that customers will actually try to, to get the product into their hands. We are also working with, I mean, all kinds of companies trying to develop these new uh, products, finished products, the collaborations that we're working with. Well, congratulations. Well, guys, you, you out there, uh, the, actually, this is not for the audience. You heard it here. We have Hector for Nutri Insectors who, who, sees, who seeks and offers partnerships, right? Uh, expanded partnerships in order to create together the next generation of food by using uh, alternative alternative proteins, such as what what Nutri Insectos is doing, uh, focused on 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 insect. Last time you broke down also the difference between uh, what was the grasshoppers that you that you were mentioning uh, that you have a lot. What was it? What's the name in in in, in Mexico? It's called chapulines, um, one kind of, of grasshopper, yeah, that you will always find. Chapulines is one that you do with tequila, right? Uh, yeah, you can do chapulines, you can do worms uh, with tequila, mezcal, I mean, many different ways to mix. So next, next, next time, guys, next time we'll meet all in Guadalajara and we do the, uh, the chapulines with, uh, with tequila. Are you in, Jonathan and Ezra? If it's powdered. <laughs> no, come I on. I didn't hear. Anyway. I'm so not keen for any whole food. <laughs> well, excellent. I would like now to move on into the second part of our virtual coffee. Let's kick off things again with Esra. Esra Service, who is an entrepreneur, biologist, founder, 
at Naturanza and Funa Foods. My second question here to you, Astra, is for many of us, the main driver of food consum consumption is flavor. But there is much more to be understood when we think about solutions to feed a growing population. So from the perspective of a responsible entrepreneur, which is seriously committed to helping build a sustainable food system, how realistic is it to say goodbye to unhealthy chemicals and additives while planning to scale a business globally? The screen is yours. That's a very good question. I The reason uh, we are jumping into meat alternatives, like main reason is our big fight is against animal farming, which is obvious. Uh, that's why we can see from the industry leaders like Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, the way to go is actually replacing the meat because people consuming meat is not just about the flavor or um, getting the nutrition. It's a part of the culture, It's a, especially in the United States. So that's why everybody is trying to replace meat to create this inside incentivizing the animal consumption but while we are doing it because taste is a big driver on the consumer people started to add so many chemicals gmos and a bunch of other things like high sodium everything else uh, but we really need to focus on the experience that's why we are doing it we are not using any kind of gmos or highly modified starches let's say or anything else that is unwanted in the plant-based meat because we see that consumers started to compromise from their own health to protect the environment, which we don't want. While we are using the, like only using cocoa butter is not easy when you are not using canola oil, uh, because it makes the price high. Especially, it, it's important during this period of time when the economic crisis is just there and everybody, like there are so many people are already laid off. So, do, for example, for us, before, like, ultimate way when you scale up as a startup is easier to, uh, to cut down your prices. But doing it beforehand is kind of tough. So during this period, we talked, we thought about it so much and we are now cutting down the production cost which we are uh, providing the non-perishable product, which is our packages consist of packages and you mix them. You can make your own plant-based alternative in three minutes at your house, which is shortening the supply chain, which is decreasing the production and shipping cost. And also people just can store it as much as they want, restaurants as well, hotels as well. So there are always ways to create some, this isn't just an example. If we want to create an impact, but also scale the business by making the product somehow cheap, it's possible. You just need to make an effort of it. But other thing is, I think it's the biggest. And when it goes to the collaboration question, I think we need to educate the market. If people are, if the consumer is asking for healthy products, and if they are well educated to notice that what's happening then every company will be racing with each other to produce something healthier that's the most important part and while we are educating the market for the alternative protein sources because they are so much more sustainable what we need to do as the next level is the health part because we don't want our consumer again to compromise from their health to create sustainability yeah, you're saying basically, again, I mean, the equation is not easy, right? Because you need, you know, if it must be sustainable, 
it must be health, right? And, and it must be also from a perspective of, you know, centered around the needs of uh, the potential and the demand of, of the user. How are you going to manage all this, these needs and all these requests in one, when, when you are in a, in, a, in a startup mode, right? So if you are bigger, maybe you have more resources, but what I like and what I, what I would like to emphasize is something that you, you mentioned sadly, you say, well, we are a startup, right? But we, we really need to think how to make it happen and not tomorrow, but today. And it means that if you are in a, in a mode of, of scarcity, you know, of limitations, if you are and limited resources are available to you, right? You become creative. And, and, and creative and creativity was what's what sparks then and what creates innovation. So congratulations that you you know you take it one step at a time and you find solutions uh, around it. I really much very much enjoyed listening to you, this perspective of yours, uh, Jonathan. Given your extensive experience as an engineer, where do you think the food industry is headed in terms of product development, lean manufacturing? technical marketing and inter international BD business development. So, you know, intriguing stuff. And I, I really do want to comment, but I love what, what Ezra's doing and, and, and putting together that puzzle and, and pivoting to hold your personal and corporate values and creating those products, putting them in the hands of consumers in a meaningful way. You know, it, it, it's really incredible. And I've, I've been on some of that journey myself. So tying that 30,000 foot view back to the whole food plant-based proteins, for us, this innovation um, reality does come down to the ingredient selections themselves and the processing choices. And so they're, you know, they have to be made to taste great first and foremost, or you really don't have a product at the end of the day. However, to do that while maximizing for health concerns, minimizing footprint and controlling cost is that puzzle that I've been working on for many years. And so um, a couple examples of some of the key ingredients that we use that, um, and, and I, I apologize, I'm not gonna fully touch on the international side as my business is very focused in this nation and on the food service businesses in this nation, but some of these ingredients are grown in very few places in the world. And we started premising our business on the Arizona grown, the Sonoran Desert dry farmed tepary bean, known as one of the most sustainable proteins on earth because the seed itself can of course be consumed as high protein and diverse nutrition or be planted back in the ground and grown into the next crop. Dry farmed using minimal water, creating this carbon footprint, water footprint to protein ratio that's extraordinary. It also allowed us to build some social responsibility into the business as a foundation, which has always been important to me. And I, I do love companies that have missions where they spend a certain portion of their profits dedicated towards their mission. To me, it was important to kind of bake it in from the ground up. And we've been able to purvey the, these tepary beans from the Toono Akamel tribal partner. And they're living on federally impoverished lands. And it just so happens that there's one of the essential amino acids in the tepary bean that's not quite there to the degree we'd like it to be, and that's lysine. However, another Navajo partner in our region that grows an incredible blue corn product has that extended amount of lysine in that ingredient. And so putting these two whole foods together, along with carrots and onions and other whole foods in our products, we were able to craft the first whole food plant-based products that can be formed and shaped and utilized like meat in a food service environment, creating all kinds of menu opportunity. Another great example would be leveraging the, the Farm Bill of 2018 and immediately integrating the hemp kernel. 
the hemp kernel being the greatest source of complete vegan protein in a whole food form that's available in the marketplace. There's no other whole food with as much complete protein as that hemp kernel. And so there's another beautiful aspect to that product, and that is greater than any forest on earth. Hemp has the ability to sequester far more carbon during its growth stages than is required to actually process and release that hemp kernel as a protein. So while it is a little bit more water challenge than a tepary bean, it really solves for the opportunity to focus on carbon footprint minimization as well as having that volume of complete protein. And so we take these unique ingredients in their whole food form and they're not really meant to go inside a giant ribbon blender or some other form of combining ingredients like is commonplace in the industry. And we really had to invent our own lean micro batch processing system in order to be able to integrate these different fresh foods with the subtleties of, of a certain way of cutting a carrot or the, the way of hydrating the cornmeal or the way of getting the right grind of a cornmeal in order to create that ready to use protein that's really necessary to our client might be as, as large as uh, one of the top six universities in the country selling it in their residential dining or in uh, all the restaurants throughout the Grand Canyon, which sees 6 million visitors in a year and having a product that's ready for that high volume opportunity. So, you know, now where we stand and, and further answering your question is that we've created what is a truly lean micro batching process and our products, no matter which of the nine different proteins we currently have in the market that are ready to use whole food products, we run them 24 pounds at a time through a micro batching system that has about 10 different pieces of intellectual property that we've invented in it that respect the integrity of that food and how we can lightly combine it with and maintain the low footprint of the whole food and optimize for flavor and so that the products are highly viable in the marketplace. It also puts us in a position to you know, take that next step towards being regional on a national basis because the footprint of building a new plant for us is less than a quarter million dollars to produce $4 million worth of product in, a sing in that first year. And so that opportunity where we don't have to invest in a pilot program, but we can replicate what we've done in lean manufacturing to produce 24 pounds at a time with redundancy in multiple regions, pulling from subtly different food sources, perhaps a blue corn in one place and an heirloom organic yellow corn in another place, we know how to manipulate with those products so that in a year like this, where we've seen 10 million acres of corn destroyed just in Iowa alone, and yes, a lot of that was for feed, but as a great example in the impacts of climate change, we're really looking to how to have this long-standing sustainability through ingredient selection, processing, and redundant regional sites. So are, are, do you think that this, is, this method of uh, development, partnership, lean manufacturing, and technical skills that you just described, would you say that these are kind of... Uh, repeatable process also for others? Would you suggest this to others? Is this something that you, you mentioned propri proprietary technology, which is awesome. Would you say, does this help you just your brand to bring it to a certain level? Or would you say this might be a default order also for others? What are your thoughts there? You know, you're, you're, you're pointing out a really great fact in that lean manufacturing is far 
from commonplace or even existent really in the food industry. But it, it, it does give that notion that when you're starting your business and you're working on learning how to process your food, is there a way to eliminate all the waste from that process and speed that process up so that the replication of the process is your ability to scale versus the increase in the size of your equipment as your modality for scaling. And so for us, what it comes down to is whether or not we take 24 pounds off the production line every two hours or every two minutes. And the amount of production lines we have and the redundancy of using lots of small high-end equipment gives us a great stability in that opportunity to protect the integrity of the system to always be producing on demand as needed for those clients or as close to on-demand as is realistic based on the growth patterns of seasonal food and otherwise. And so I believe that it's inherent to answer your question directly, Tommaso. I believe that lean manufacturing for a small entrepreneur, for someone who's new to the food industry, is actually how they start, whether they know it or not. Mm. And the real question becomes whether you take it to a mass volume contract manufacturer that's gonna figure out a different way to produce it in massive system, or you figure out how to take it forward in a direction that may require some lean expertise, some reading or a consultant, um, possibly some sourcing and purchasing expertise. But that's where the opportunity for others to do what we've done and, uh, and continue to move down a path really exists. I believe it does. I love you sharing this experience, Jonathan, because on one hand, uh, I mean, it definitely noticed, you know, the, the hands-on and bottom-up approach and say, this is what we prototype, this is what, what the MVP has been, this is what the market is accepting right now, right? But then the question is, okay, if we need, would need to scale it and make it available for, for millions and millions, right? Is this still the same approach? Question mark, will we still have the same quality? Question marks, what are the methods there, right? So you are thinking in different phases, right? And for different phases, having different methods, but this is for, as of today, uh, what has been working um, for you, Jonathan. Thanks for sharing that. We switch gears now, uh, going back to industry of uh, insects as an alternative uh, protein. So here I would like to have my, well, actually last round or last question for Hector before we switch to the audience. So throughout the history of mankind, eating insect has actually been a common idea. In the United States, the population has been rather guarded, however, of uh, utilizing this valuable commodity. While we all agree that the food system is no longer sustainable and insects are a source of high quality protein, containing many essential amino acids, fatty acids, minerals, and vitamins required for human nutrition, in addition to dietary fiber that most other animal products don't offer, we still seem to be far from seeing edible insects in mainstream. Hector, your question, what are the key factors that can drive growth in edible insects in attractive markets? In other words, how does it get in our diets? The screen is yours. Take it from here. Well, to, to be honest, what we've seen in, in recent studies, we believe price is the main key factor that it's somehow keeping insects from, from consumers' diets. We believe so because when we talk about plant-based products, most consumers don't even know what ingredients these products have. They just know 
it doesn't come from, from cows, pigs, or swine, chicken, whatever. The way that, that we see insects have like a great opportunity is once we, we solved out the, the price, and uh, as Ezra wa was saying, the demand is there, whether it's for pet food, uh, protein shakes, protein bars, what, uh, whatever. Once we solve that, that, that key factor, which is price, we know startups and large companies will try to integrate all these nutrients into finished products. The way this can be done, of course, can be turning them into powder, which is a minimal process. But we are working in extracting additional ingredients, ingredients for uh, the pharmaceutical industry, cosmetics, you name it. But as, as mentioned before, we know companies are focusing on taste, texture, as said. But uh, nutrition is one, one key factor that customers are going to look into. We've seen that they don't really look at the ingredients as much as they look at the safety and the sustainability of these ingredients. So we know that, that integrating insects into regular products will make sense for customers if price is comparable to other animal proteins. So again, it's just a matter of collaboration. We wouldn't be able to touch all these different aspects but we know that if we are able to, to have a product in the industry that, that is comparable in price to other animal proteins, consumers will rather have a product that has both ends, like plant protein, animal protein, with a good texture, good taste. And it's just a matter of time. I mean, price will be the, the, the main obstacle. But once that's solved, we know insects will, will have a great impact in, in taking part of customers' diets. So guys, you heard it. Hector Jimenez, co-founder and director of Nutrients. Hector says, well, price, and then, then we blend it into, into whatever, obviously, uh, tastes good. And then we, we might surpass the, the yik factor, right? So the, oh, you know, should we do the, the, the insect thing, yes, yes or no? Well, very interesting. Thank you so much, Hector, for sharing this. And actually, also, thanks, uh, Jonathan, and thanks, Ezra. Now we have been selected, our team has selected three questions from the audience because we are getting close to wrap up our episode number 11 of our virtual coffee when we focus on alternative protein under the umbrella and the mission on how we feed 10 billion people by 2050. And I would like to kick off things in this uh, uh, round of questions with uh, a question for Jonathan. Jim is asking from Sacramento, so California actively involves here um, for Jonathan. How does local alternative food support its food service clients growth strategy do you have plans to scale your service nation nationwide and abroad question mark thanks jim for asking jonathan jonathan scaling nationwide and if yes how fantastic question and thank you so much for that question we're absolutely look at the realities that what most people consider local or regional food can go national and the way that it does so is through being able to first serve the region that you're in with complete dependability. And for the record, throughout this COVID reality we've been living 
and working exclusively in food service. We've got uh, multiple clients and even a distributor who has complimented us on being the single supplier that they have that throughout this time has been able to remain consistent in our delivery and the quality of our product. They can't get the same cuts of meat they normally get. They're not getting the same produce they normally get, but our product based on our sourcing and fulfillment systems for the region that we focus on has remained dependable and we haven't missed an order or had to substitute a product in our ingredient portfolio throughout this entire time. And so by doing it region by region, we actually have the opportunity to move a micro batch facility. We were in March about, we were real close to opening a second facility that was going to be in the Ohio area, giving us an east-west location. And in doing so, it gives us the opportunity to do two things. One, homogenize certain recipes across ingredients that are easily available nationally. For instance, hemp is a great example. And secondly, to be able to leverage the seasonal and local ingredients to run limited time offers for some of the larger chains. And we're starting to really court this national business. Um, we're very effectively getting into hundreds of, uh, I should say accounts that have hundreds of locations. And those accounts are very interested in the reality that we will be scaling up to meet their needs and building production lines that are dedicated to their business in the regions that are appropriate to best fulfill consistently for their businesses. So the answer is there's absolutely a path, a plan, and um, an acceptance of the opportunity to move lean manufacturing and whole food plant-based opportunity directly into the larger scale food system. Amazing, Jonathan, thank you so much. Jim, thanks also for the question. So we take it, uh, Jonathan takes it one at a time while keeping the, the quality, and he mentioned dedicated to one part. And I love really this mentality of scaling while keeping up the quality uh, on a sustainable way. Congratulations there, Jonathan. Now we have Kim from Oakland, uh, our neighbors here, asking Ezra. Ezra, what is critical in your value proposition slash growth strategy? I, I guess I might add also what makes you unique in this, right? Please take it from here. Thank you, Jim, uh, Kim, for asking. Yeah, thank you, Kim, for the question. While we were uh, looking for the opportunities in here in the United States for the uh, human food products, I actually want to also add something to what Hector said. I don't think insects all about the price. I think we need a lot of work in marketing, a lot of work, not just like a little bit of work, but a lot of work, especially in the United States. And I understand in Mexico, people are already consuming those. It's a part of the culture, but in the United States, people don't consume uh, edible insects. And what we see is every, almost like most of the companies, edible insect companies are putting those insect pictures on their packages or on their social media. And honestly, like United, in the United States, people don't know even the meat is coming from an actual cow sometimes. Like they don't want to see or like imagine, of course they know, but like they don't want to imagine that. And while we are putting, which is not like, I wish we can educate more about where the meat, actual meat is coming from, that's the other thing. But also I think as the insect companies, we really need to find out other words or like part, make it more acceptable for people. So what we are doing uniquely from the insect companies, 
Um, there is a trend, there is a market education that Impossible Burger, Beyond Meat, those companies created that people are willing to replace meat if you can replace the experience. So this is the insect, the unique point of the in, in the insect space. But when we, when we are talking about the meat alternatives, as I mentioned before, plant-based meat, they are focusing so much on the replacing the, like baking the meat taste that they are using so many chemicals and GMO to produce that taste. What we learned though, if you can create the texture replacement, like if you can create a substitute that they can use in a burger, if they can make a meatball and they can use it in a meal, then the acceptance is so much higher. You don't need to actually fake the meat taste because you will never make it taste like meat. Yes, you will get close, but it immediately makes the consumer compare with the meat taste and then you fail because they are being like, oh no, this is not actually like meat. But people are willing to make a change because of the sustainable and need. Like we cannot keep, if, and you look at the numbers for, you mentioned 10 million people and 2050, we will need a larger, 140% uh, larger land mass than the United States to feed the entire world. And 98% of the water will be used for animal farming. This is crazy. It's not even possible. So we have to find a solution. But at the same time, we need to hear consumer more. What they are actually looking for. Are they looking for the taste or are they looking for only sustainable or health? I think uh, in the plant-based industry, people are more educated about the ingredients not being very, very healthy, as Hector mentioned. Amazing. Thank you for your perspective. Thank you so much, uh, Asra, for sharing this. Kim, thanks for the question. Kim from Oakland. And last but not least, we have here a third question uh, for um, Hector. Pete from Palo Alto, so really a neighbor here, uh, 50 minutes from my from my location right now. So the European Food Safety Authority is expected to approve the sale of insects for human consumption. It means that for the first time, there will be a huge raft of edible insects on sales across European countries and new opportunities in the food industry. So question for you here uh, from Pete Hacker, how soon, how soon mealworm burgers, low-cost aperitifs and cricket and grasshoppers canola could be expected to be seen in markets and menus in the entire uh, European uh, region. Thank you so much, Pete. Hector, thank you from here. Well, first of all, if you allow me to add up to what Ezra was saying, yes, I, I believe marketing is, is probably, I mean, you can debate number one or two factor, but in our perspective, we know price is our main goal. Once price is down, companies, or our clients will be working on in developing clients' desires in terms of what the product might or should look like. And they are the ones who should focus on the market. I mean, on, on the marketing, sorry. I know education is, is key, but as I was mentioning at the beginning, we believe collaboration and, and talking di directly with our consumers they will be having the main communication with the customers and they are the ones who we expect will be the, the experts in terms of marketing their products to the end consumers. So yeah, I, I totally agree, but, but our goal is to make the, product, the, our, the ingredient cheap as possible for them to incorporate and then do the, the final sale. And in terms of uh, how soon we see uh, 
product into go, uh, going into the European market. We believe 2021 will be a key year for, for this industry. We saw uh, an increased interest probably three years ago. The media was going mad about uh, edible insects, but actually producers were, were not ready for all, all of that demand. And some of the startups <clears throat> that were developing finished products didn't have all the tools to sell the product, to market the product, and to educate the customer. Fortunately, in Europe, customers are more open to the idea, beginning for the fact that it is a sustainable protein. They don't care as much as where the ingredient comes from. They don't really focus on whether it's an insect or not. They just want to know it's clean, it's organic, it's sustainable. Uh, we believe that 2021 is when most of companies such as ourselves, producers, will be getting all the support needed to produce as much protein as possible uh, at a lower price and companies will develop more and more products using this ingredient. So, so we believe 2021, we will see not only in the media, but uh, these kind of products in the market, in the shelves. Amazing, amazing. Thanks for sharing your perspective, Hector. I'm really looking forward, you know, to sit in Paris and instead of having, you know, a, a typical uh, coco vin, I have an insecto vin or something, right? Or if I'm in Spain, I have some tapas and I don't notice it. As I'm really curious to see, obviously, I didn't make a joke about the Italians because I'm Italian, right? How would a pizza with insects make <laughs> taste? I don't know, but I'm really curious and open. Or Ezra, Ezra, I was in Istanbul. You guys do amazing lakma jun, right? This, uh, imagine the lakma jun with the insects, right? Well, well, I'm definitely open for that. We still see a lot of challenges, right? Uh, how to create it sustainably. How do we figure out that the pricing and the quality matches, right? Ezra was emphasizing also the educational part. We need a lot of dollars and backers that supports this mission. As a matter of fact, there is one major point. By 2050, we are, we are needing uh, new forms of food, new forms, alternative uh, proteins, and the way we're doing it today, it's not possible. So meat analogs are here to stay, regardless where we have our proteins, as long as it's sustainable and as it's yummy, right? And as long as the human being basically buys into it. And actually, I have one final question. And the question here goes to uh, our panelists, and you guys out there cannot miss it, which is how is going to be the world in 2050 in terms of food? How are we going to eat in 2050? I'm really curious to hear Ezra, Jonathan, and Hector about their perspective on how we are going to eat. What are we going to eat? The world, the mankind in 2050. Latest first, Ezra, take it from you, please. Um, thank you. I think definitely, yes, sustainability, healthy, these things are going to get even more popular because we will kind of need to. We are going to be crowded. Climate ch ch changing, climate change is happening and it's not going to stop there. I'm kind of worried about plant-based people because they have to figure out a way to uh, produce them 
indoor, which is not very possible with soy and pea protein. You cannot really do that. So um, insects are definitely going to be the winner for the future. That's one thing. But um, when it comes to like the way people consume, I think they, there is always like innovation and familiarity going together. So sometimes innovation goes and then the same thing in the history we see becomes the trend in the future. So I am more expecting that like the fast way to eat will kind of will increase at some point. Like we will eat drink protein shakes or we will have this functional food which is fast and nutritious and everything else. But then I'm expecting kind of going back to traditional slow food that we are going to enjoy because while we are going quick, we are missing the taste and the culture of the food. I kind of expect to have that slow food culture back again, more focusing on the deliciousness and culinary. Awesome. I really love that. That's where it goes in two directions. One is functional food, basic, really uh, focused on what are the proteins that the body needs. And on the other hand, slow food and enjoying it, right? And I'm totally in for that. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? You know, in 20. 50, that's a, it's a great question, a fantastic way to, to pull into your vision, you know, and the, the reality of the, the today, what we're seeing is lots of meat analogs that are aspiring to look, smell and taste like a meat. And I see the menu starting to really trend to more of a menu item analog, where to Ezra's point, we're using the buns, the salad platforms, the pizzas, the falafels and replacing some of the different ingredients in a shawarma or on a pizza with perhaps insects, perhaps whole food plant-based items that really bring us back to our tastes of place, to quality of nutrition, and to a sustainable footprint that will all actually be here to enjoy the food in 2050 together and in a sustainable environment. So sustainable, says Jonathan, by 2050, by replacing what we already have and uh, with alternative uh, proteins. Thanks so much, uh, Hector, last but not least. Uh, well, first of all, when you said, what are we going to be eating or what's going to look like, we need to think about different markets, right? Uh, first world countries will be eating very differently from third world countries or, or different areas. But I believe first world countries, which will have the opportunity to, to get all these nutrients, what I see is that people are going to have two options. Monday through Friday, it's going to be super fast food, shakes, functional foods, protein bars, you name it, but very limited options. I mean, I will say maybe three, five, 10 at the most. And weekends or maybe dinner during the week, that's when people will very uh, appreciate slow food, slow cooking, very traditional, but it's going to be really between those two ideas of super nice tasting, nice texture, super fast food that is functional and very few times traditional slow food and something that goes with the country's culture. Nectar, I love your segmentations also between who actually is going to eat what, right? Third world countries are countries that are still in development or first world countries and then the breakdown of, okay, we don't have time, so we need functional food and then maybe enjoying something on the weekend with slow food. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are wrapping up our 11th episode. I learned a lot, which is always my mission 
to be always the dumbest in the room. Thank you so much for sharing this knowledge, not just with us, but with others too. And I would like to wrap up actually on my end with a, with a quote that I learned to, uh, well, put together over the last 20 years of my activities as an entrepreneur academia, uh, who's which table and investor, which goes like this, never forget where you come from. It keeps you humble, but where you come from cannot limit where you want to go. With that, I would like to thank everybody. Thank you so much. Today, Jonathan, CEO, acting CEO of Local Alternatives Food, Hector, co-founder at Nutrition Insectus, and Ezra, service entrepreneur, biologist, and founder of Naturanza and Puna Foods. Gracias. Thank you. Danke. See you next time. Bye-bye.